cancer, he's got Alzheimer's and these things that affect his mind. But Lord, we know that you are bigger than all of that. And I just pray, Lord, that you would cut through all of those sicknesses and meet this man where he is at. And Father, our prayer is, is that you would save his soul. And so, Father, we lift up not just these requests. I pray for those, Lord, who were unmentioned, those that were not put on the prayer chain, and pray, God, that you would meet those people where they're at. But we pray right now, Father, once again, for our study in this glorious gospel, that, Lord, again, you would be glorified through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. As we saw last week in our introduction to the Gospel of Mark, and we did end up going through the first chapter, but the Gospels are the good news of salvation by grace through faith based upon the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the intent of John Mark, the author here. More than likely, um, John Mark is writing from what he has heard from the Apostle Peter, but nonetheless, John Mark, his intent is to tell us not so much of what Jesus said, but what Jesus has done. Key points of last week in chapter 1 were verses 2 through 8, and we saw the tie-in with Jesus Christ and the prophecies concerning the Messiah. Jesus is now on the scene, and John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament-type prophet, he must decrease. And we saw the prophecies concerning John the Baptist, speaking of his ministry to the Lord in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And as we saw, John the Baptist, not so much a work of salvation, but a work of preparation, preparing to introduce the world to Jesus Christ. In verses eight through nine, I'm sorry, nine through ten, we saw Jesus' baptism, and it's just a picture of how all philosophies of man, they all end in despair at death. Well, Jesus meets us at the point of death, and it's there that we find eternal life. In verses 10 through 11, we saw in Jesus the example how we must be filled with the Holy Spirit for the work of ministry that God calls us to. There's only two ways that we're able to fulfill the will of God, or at least attempt to fulfill the will of God, and that's either in the flesh or in the Spirit. The flesh will fall short every single time. If Jesus needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, how much more so do we need to ask the Father for the Spirit to come upon us and enable us in what God has called us to do? In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, this is Jesus speaking, because he has appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. In verses 12 through 13, we saw a time of trial and testing And we saw the rich typology of Jesus 40 days in the wilderness. And we saw how he was amongst the beasts. And this reminds us of Adam, how Adam had perfect situations and circumstances. And he sinned and he failed. Jesus had very much less than perfection as far as circumstances. And he prevailed. Verses 14 through 20, the essence of those Jesus calls. We saw Peter and Andrew. They were netcasters. And we see their ministry the strong point of it, they were evangelists. James and John, they were net menders. They kind of had a pastoral position of healing and restoration. Verses 29 through 31, we saw the necessity of taking Jesus home from church, if you will, where the apostle Peter, his wife's mother, was sick. As Peter had heard the word of God, now they're in Peter's house, and we see the work that God does, the work that God does when you bring Christ into your home. Verses 32 through 39, Jesus and a necessary time for prayer. And then verses 40 through 45, back at that time, a man was told to go and don't tell, but the man went and spoke. And we saw today God tells us to go and to tell, but are we really faithful in speaking of all that he has to do? Now tonight we're entering into chapter 2, and as we move into chapter 2, we'll see three more, we'll focus upon three more events of the Lord's life. We see the healing of the paralytic man, we'll see the calling of Matthew, and we'll see the religiously righteous versus the relationally remorseful and this great work that God does. So verse 1, 
And again, he, the Lord, entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Now, when it says he entered into Capernaum, Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee. It's in the northern part of Israel. Previous, we saw that he was in the region of Jerusalem, went and was baptized just about 30 miles east of Jerusalem. So now he has walked about two, two to three-day journey up north to the Sea of Galilee, two, three-day journey by walking, and he is in this seaside city of Capernaum. Now, I looked it up on the internet, the most dangerous place to be. Where is the most dangerous place that a person can be in society today? It's in their house. It's a place, didn't you guys, your daughter just experience a broken foot in her house? It's a dangerous place to be. It's the place where most accidents occur. The home is where where more policemen lose their lives as they go into these domestic disturbances. It's where the majority of abuse takes place. The most deadly place within the home is in the bathtub. The bathtub is where most people get hurt within their house. But if you desire to diffuse this bomb, you can know it's diffused. You can know that you have changed your home from a sanitarium to a sanctuary. Well, instead of Mark here in the New King James Version, I'm going to read this same passage, verse 1 of chapter 2. I just like the way it reads. In the King James Version, it says, And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that Jesus was in the house. It was noised or it was heard that Jesus was in the house. Now, when he says the house, I'm just assuming that the last house that we see that he was in was Peter's house. So I'm just assuming he's at Peter's house just on, it says he's in Capernaum, just close to the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Not that that's important. And so last week, Peter took Jesus home from church, if you will. And what we're seeing here is, is a picture of if you are open to it, the Lord will take up residence. So last week we saw that place where Peter took the Lord home. And we saw the effect that the Lord had upon Peter's, well, in this particular case, his mother-in-law, but really the whole family. And I brought up the possibility of, well, is that something that we do as we come to church? Do we leave Jesus at church or do we bring him home? Bring him home into our lives or, or at the very least, when was the last time you sat down with your family and discussed what we talked about at church? Or maybe your kids, what they talked about at Sunday school. It's part of the reason for the craft that we give, that we do in the class, and that they would take that craft home, and you wouldn't just slap it on the refrigerator until the following week and replace it with the next one. But you would see what your kids are being taught, and that you would talk to your kids about what they were being taught. What does that mean to that child's life? What does that mean through that child's life into those whom they play with out on the playground or in the neighborhood? What we need to see here is (coughs) there's real opportunity in that. If God's word is living and powerful, we need to receive that, not just into ourselves, but distribute it into our family. Jesus should be noised that he was in our house. In Psalm 127, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now, an interesting portion of Jesus' ministry at the beginning of it, we see this in the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll see a picture of it here. But in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, we saw the integral parts of Jesus' ministry were preaching, teaching, and healing. There were healings, but Jesus was always strong on the preaching and the teaching. Healings were not the central portion of his ministry. It was the delivery of the word of God. And really what happened was these healings and these signs and wonders all pointed towards the reality of those teachings. What has happened in some circles today, they're heavy on the healings or the signs and wonders, and they're low on the word of God. Well, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And if you don't have the Word of God, then you're not changing the souls of men and women. You may be putting on a false front with the healings or the signs and wonders, but spiritually speaking, that will do absolutely nothing for anybody. So look at verses 2 through 5, it says, 
back in Mark chapter uh, 2, immediately many gathered together. So the idea here, as soon as Jesus came to this house, they heard that Jesus was in the house. It was noise that he was in the house. And immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Then Jesus saw their faith and he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, you look at this and we have to see the proper context of what is being spoken of here and what the Lord is wanting to illustrate here. Because this man is not saved, if anything, except for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what is being illustrated is the part that my faith works in the life of somebody else, in the life of somebody who needs to be saved. And so in this paralytic man, what you need to see is all humanity that can spiritually do absolutely nothing for themselves. They're completely helpless to do anything about their situation. And how is it that we are able to enter in, that we are able to enter in as these four men did and play a part in that? This is faith to such a degree in what Jesus is able to do that these men would overcome insurmountable obstacles to come before the Lord. And so these are people with such a burden, such a heart for this man who is in such a desperate situation. And the thing that they know is we got to get this guy to Jesus. Do you have that same passion about yourself? And, And it's not so much about somebody sick or somebody paralyzed, although they need the Lord as well. But it's about those people who are just simply in that condition that they could do nothing about it. The, the lost, the unsaved. Are we willing to step outside of ourselves in order to see them come to the place of their salvation? Again, these men overcame this insurmountable obstacle. It would have been real easy, you know, I had to work all day, I'm kind of tired, or, you know, I just don't feel comfortable in asking people to come to church. They overcame all of that. Or there's the crowd. Never any place to park the chariot. Here we go all the way out there. There's a crowd outside the door and the whole thing. You know, it's just, it's just a lot of work. Not, they overcame that. And then they got there, and there was everybody. I imagine the crowds were out the doors and nobody could get in. And it would have been real easy just to turn around and go out and to eat and head home or whatever it might be. But no, they overcame that to such a degree that they were willing to climb up on the roof, to open the roof up, and to let him in. Because they knew that this man just had to come into the proximity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now... Because I know the Bible as a whole, I know, since this man was saved, that this man did come to the Lord in faith, the paralytic man. But it's not about the paralytic man. It's about the passion of these four men who would go beyond themselves to get their friend before Christ. And so let me ask you this. Who did you not bring to church today because it was too hard? Who did you not bring to church today because it was too hard. I mean, Jesus is here. The word's going out. We're in a gospel. The crowd's not too big. Got plenty of chairs here. We've even got, I don't know what Bill has planned for us in hospitality, but we even have free food after service is over. What stopped us? Probably just simply a lack of faith. A lack of faith and understanding the spiritual magnitude of what God wants to do. What God wants to do Not every time Mike speaks, but every time the word of God goes out. God wants to do something, and he wants to do something in all of our lives. He wants to grow us in the knowledge of Jesus Christ as well. But what about the people who he wants to save? I mean, think about it. If God spoke to you beyond any any shadow of doubt, and he told you, whoever it is that you bring to church tonight, that he was going to save, who would you bring? Who would you bring? And then I'd have to ask, in faith, when faith enters into the equation, without that guarantee, why haven't you brought him? Faith, our faith is to be expectant, expecting God to do something great. Because again, if I was guaranteed, I could write a long list, and I'm part of this 
package as well. But I could write a long list. I'd get so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. If, if God's going to save them, I'll get them. I'll get them here, and I'll do whatever is necessary. I mean, if i got to go down there and kidnap them, if the salvation of their soul is at stake, I'll do that with a passion. Well, then how come I'm not doing it with a passion just any time? Because you just never know when God is going to move. You never know when God is going to save. Who ministered to you believing in what Jesus could do? I had plenty of people who ministered to me, some of them in some pretty hard circumstances. Some of them out on the construction site when it wasn't very popular to speak of Christ. People spoke to me about Christ. Times when I was militant towards Jesus Christ and the gospel, they still overcame that because, well, in faith what they were doing is they were bringing me before the face of the Lord. And finally, at some point, if you will, it took. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God, in the gospel, is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. I always like that, from faith to faith. And anytime I read that, it always reminds me of the string. From the day that I was saved, the person that ministered to me from faith to faith, but also the person that ministered to them, and the person that ministered to them, and you can take it all the way back to an apostle and then to the mouth of Jesus Christ. And, and again, we all come from Jesus Christ delivering the word, spiritually speaking, from Jesus Christ delivering the word. And some apostle or disciple that heard it from the mouth of Christ and spoke it to somebody else and then take it back the other way, and it still arrives at the front door of the day of your salvation. And it's really an amazing concept. And look at the results of what these guys did in verse 5. <coughs> when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of these four guys, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, that doesn't mean that this man did not have faith. Again, I think that's important to settle. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This man had faith because he was in the presence of Christ. Hearing the word of God, by grace you've been saved through faith. I can't get saved because of somebody else's faith, but I can get saved through somebody else's faith. Who's been saved through your faith? And what I mean, you acting on your faith are obedient to what God has called you to do. Well, that's what happened with this man. When he says, son, your sins are forgiven you, we see the results. When he calls him son, that puts him in the family of God. When he tells him you're forgiven, that puts him in fellowship with God. This man has come into God's house and he has come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Verses 6 through 12. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. There's always going to be these religious people who, who are just of the mindset that it's got to be done our way. If it's not done our way, then it's not done the proper way. You'll get people at a, a harvest event marching with the signs because they don't believe that Greg Laurie is doing it the proper way. I remember men's conferences at Anaheim Stadium that Pastor Chuck used to put on. Again, people with the signs are protesting because these things aren't, doing, aren't being done the proper way. Well, God's way is for people to preach God's word, for man to hear it, and come to a decision for Christ. And that's what it's all about. But then again, we've always got these, well, in this particular case, these scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Verse 7, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easy? Easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk. So he, he, he's setting them up, but he's setting them up, obviously, in a very good way. Yeah, anybody can go up to somebody and say, you know, your sins are forgiven you. And so here's the beginning of Christ's ministry. Man is learning what true saving faith is and what Christ is able to do. And so what we're seeing here, going to see here, is the sign entering in. And the sign isn't entering in for the wow factor, but for the Lord factor, or maybe I should say Lord and Savior, to verify who Jesus is. Verse 10, But that you may know that the Son of Man, that Jesus has power on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go into your house. Immediately, 
he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The problem is, and we see this in John chapter 6, that there came a time when even the miracles got old, and those people who were just hanging around for the miracles, they walked away. But there are those who saw what had happened, and it was an amazing thing. I can't imagine seeing this happen and not being in awe, but we are to be in awe of the Lord. It is to bring us into a realization. Signs, wonders, healings are to bring us into a higher understanding of the reality of who God is, and for us, the truthfulness of the Word of God. And so in these scribes, we see the religiously rigid, and we'll look at them in a few verses here to come. But first note, what's going on in verse 2? And immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. There's the preaching. Verses 8 through 10 There's the teaching. He's explaining to them what's going on. And then in verses 11 through 12, there's the healing. The preaching, the teaching, and the healing. And you need to work back on that. It's just the healing comes to verify both the preaching and the teaching. If you're there just simply for the miraculous, you're going to leave empty. If you're there for the preaching and the teaching, you're going to leave changed. Notice how healing follows the preaching and teaching. As you turn on the TV and you see those things that you're never really sure about, you know, or or maybe you are sure and you recognize the fallacy of the whole thing. If there's somebody new and you're not really sure about it, are they centered upon the Word of God? Or are they centered upon what they say God is doing through them? How do you know when God's not doing something through them, when it's a false sign and wonder? When they get the glory. Again, you see the people, Benny Hinn, for instance, he's on TV and it's all about Benny Hinn Ministries and he's on that stage. He usually wears a white suit and the lights are on him. He almost looks like he's glowing and the focal point is always upon this man and it's never upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these men were able to break through for the purpose of this man's healing, both spiritually and physically. How do we do this today? How do we break through today? (coughs) I got a call. I believe it was on Wednesday. I'm pretty sure it was on Wednesday. Charita. Charita was a lady who I've never met in my life until Tuesday. She was at Kindred Hospital. And they called me and said, Pastor Mike, we have a lady. And (coughs) I don't remember the terminology that they were using, but basically they were going to disconnect her off life support. And they said the family would like a Protestant pastor to come and to pray with them. And when can you be here? And I go, well, when do you need me to be here? Because we need you to be here pretty quick. And so I, I went there, got there pretty quick. And there's this lady who is in this bed. Her family is gathered around her. And they're in tears, very emotional time. And as they're there, just, I, I just see this woman. And it just reminded me of this paralytic man. And, and there was a breakthrough that was needed. Now, I, this woman, I don't know if she's a born-again believer or not. But the one thing that I knew was is that I had what was necessary for that situation and that God had delivered to me. I had the Word of God and I had prayer. And it's that which was necessary at that time. What you want is to have the power to heal. But that's up to the Lord. That's not up to me. And so I needed to be faithful with what I knew that I had and what I was called to do. And so what did I do? I anointed her with oil, and I prayed for her. And I stayed there for a while, ministered to the family, and ended up leaving. And I, they hadn't told me what had become of her. I would imagine she's in the presence of the Lord, hopefully in a safe state even right now. But again, we studied this in detail a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning in James chapter 5, verse 13. He's very emphatic here. Is anyone among you suffering? Then let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Well, this is exactly what we are to do when somebody is sick. And this is all that, I mean, we're to be there and be present, but you're not expected to to do that which you can't do. But what we can do 
is to pray. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That's what we're supposed to do. And it's one of the things that I'm learning to have contentment in. And that prayer is enough. The Word of God, I bring the Word of God in prayer when I go to situations like that. But the prayer, prayer is enough and the Word of God is sufficient. And as you leave, you need to have a confidence in that. But you also need to have a passion when you hear of the opportunity, that you would enter into the opportunity, overcoming obstacles as these four men did. But because they did that, their buddy was saved. And their buddy was even healed. And so we see all that, the opportunity that is there when it comes to the Lord. Secondly, We have the calling of the Apostle Matthew, verse 13. Then he went out again by the seas, be the Sea of Galilee, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And he passed by, he saw Levi, this would be Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now keep in mind the reason I would imagine Matthew would be there, because there were profitable businesses that were going on as far as fishing in the Sea of Galilee, and also I would imagine that would attract other businesses, so it was probably a pretty prime place for a tax collector. A tax collector was to collect the required Roman tax, and anything he was able to collect above and beyond that, he would be able to put in his pocket. And so if you were able to get this job, this would be a pretty plum job to get in that you can almost set your own wages. Verse 15, now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house, keep in mind again, Levi is the the apostle Matthew, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many and he followed and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Matthew, Matthew means gift of Yahweh. And Matthew truly did receive a gift. But Matthew, what you need to see in Matthew is he's just simply a sinner. He understands this and he recognizes it. He's a sinner just as many that have come before him. Adam and Eve, they were sinners. They thought they could be like God. Noah was prone to alcohol. Lot had an incestuous relationship with his daughters. Abraham, during faithless times, lied. Moses had anger issues. Ruth's family, they were idolaters. King David was a murderer and an adulterer. Tamar and Rahab, they were harlots. And consider who you are. We have a reflection of this, of who we truly are. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And verse 11, he says, and such were some of you. You know, don't look down your nose at these people in that list in verses 9 and 10, because that's where you were. You were like that paralytic man in the midst of all of that sea of sin. It says here, and such were some of you, but, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed, washed by the blood. The idea is you heard the word of God. You were sanctified through the power of the Holy Spirit. You were separated from them, and you were justified. God now chooses to see you just as if you have never sinned. And so what's going on with the Sadducees and Pharisees that are religiously rigid? They're looking down their nose at this man. We should be able to relate to Levi here or or Matthew understanding who he is. It's what's called a publican or a tax collector. Well, it was bad enough that Jews were under Roman domination, but then to have to pay taxes to Rome would really stick in their craw. In the Jewish culture, Matthew was in the class of swine. He was held to be a traitor, a liar, and ranked with robbers and murderers. 
you know, kind of how you feel about the IRS. That's how they felt about Matthew, this tax collector. What does the sinner who comes to Christ do? Well, notice they went to his house and he brought all these other people. I would imagine Matthew is all he heard was, follow me. And if you kind of think back to the day that you're saved, that's pretty much what you heard from Christ as well, is to come and to follow him. And we are to follow him first in repentance and, and, and asking for forgiveness of sins and so on and so forth and living a life that reflects his. But nonetheless, he's of the mindset, you know what? My buddies need to hear about this. His life was changed. It was transformed. And what better thing to do and to invite them, and invite them all over for dinner? Verses 16 and 17, And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors, plural, and sinners, so there was others that were there, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? This would be be beyond them. They would never eat with such people because they considered themselves to be righteous through their own efforts. And so their problem, their problem really when you whittle it down is pride. What's the situation here? Well, Jesus is the latest religious sensation. He's verified a lot of these things through the miracles that he has done. And the problem that the religious guys are having here, he's eating with them, and he's not eating with us. But see, it's all about the Lord. And that's kind of what he's saying here. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. See, they think that they're righteous. But Jesus, he sees these sinners and he's having pity upon them. He's having mercy upon them. These people who are self-righteous, well, they don't see any necessity for a relationship with God. They think they've already arrived. The problem is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But this is the beauty of Christ. Revelation chapter 3 verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. There's not one person that is beyond the grace of God. And it's the beauty of the power of God's salvation. As John was preparing the way for the Lord... The idea was repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the only way that you can come to the point of repentance is to understand that you're a sinner. This is the danger of self-righteousness. They don't see themselves as sinners. Moving on, thirdly, we see the religiously righteous versus the relationally remorseful in verses 18 through 22. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting And they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Jesus is basically saying, I'm here before you right now. In verse 21, But no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined, but new wine must be put in to new wineskins. And so we see here that it's so easy to get stuck in religious routine, even in a Calvary chapel. We readily recognize the Jews in this. They should have ushered in Messiah. But what we're seeing here is, is John the Baptist, his disciples are falling into the same trap. We fast, the disciples of John and the Pharisees. Notice they're kind of in the same camp here. Hey, how come they're not? and you can fill in the religious routine. How come you're not baptizing people on the day that they're saved? How come you're not celebrating communion every day? How come you guys go to church on Sunday and not a Saturday? And people will usually get something that they excel in or some kind of pet religious belief and try to put that upon everybody. And again, John the Baptist, his guys kind of fell into that same routine here. Fasting was required by God only once a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. But Jewish tradition added to that, added a Monday and a Thursday fast to that, and that's what they're talking about. How come your disciples aren't fasting on Monday and Thursday like we do? 
And that's usually what it boils down to. How come you don't fill in the blank like we do? And we can even take that into our personal life. I was teaching the men on Wednesday morning at the Men Mobilize study, and I was reminded of one of my religious routine kind of things, and that God spoke to my wife and myself early in our salvation and told us that we needed to take the TV out of our house. And so we did. We had five, eight years, whatever it was, I don't remember, that we had no TV in our house, and it was instrumental in our kids becoming readers. But then I started looking down at my nose at other people that had TVs in their house. I started thinking that I was something because I didn't have a TV in my house. And this was around the advent of the big screen TV, and those people were really sinners that had big screens in their TV, TVs in their house. And so we can come, become that so easily. It was a personal conviction that God placed upon my wife and myself's heart, and, and, and I should have had contentment in doing that. But then God showed me at a per- certain point in my, my walk that this has become something very, well, it's become something rigid in your life rather than a joy in what God has called you to do. And we've got to be careful about that. John, at some point when he was in prison, Matthew chapter 11, we're not going to turn there, but told his disciples to go and ask Jesus if he truly was the Messiah. Now, I don't really, now John could have had a lapse of faith, and that's possible, but really what I was thinking is, is that I thought that was John wanting to send his disciples to Christ because John's got disciples. He ought not to have disciples. Remember, he needs to reduce and Jesus needs to increase. Why does John need disciples? At this point in his ministry, he doesn't. Matter of fact, he's not going to be alive for much longer. And so what he does is he sends them to Christ. They ask the questions and they receive the answers. Verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment or else the new piece pulls away when it's washed, it shrinks and it pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. Jesus was not teaching a reformed version of the Pharisees' way, but Jesus was teaching a whole new thing. In Romans chapter 7, verse 6, But now, by dying to what once bound us, dying to the law, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not of the old way of the written code. Because the old way of the written code just revealed the sinners that we were. And so the idea here is you cannot attach a new patch to old clothes. You cannot attach Jesus to your old life. You cannot attach grace to the law or to man's traditions. It simply doesn't work. Verse 22, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined, but new wine must be put into new wineskins. Now this is just something common since it was common in the area. If you had an old wineskin, it would get dry and it would get brittle. You put new wine in there, it's still fermenting. It's still giving off the gases. It's still expanding. And if you put that into something that's hard and rigid, it's just simply going to burst. And so you have these men who are hard and rigid and they're unopened. They're not willing to expand, but you've got these sinners. These sinners who realize, because what does the Spirit do? It convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And you have these sinners... And now this is something new. This is a new light that has come in their life to give them new life. And they're receiving it all. And they're flexible. They're not tied into these old religious ways. And it's not even so much the Old Testament as far as the religious leaders, but it's really their traditions that have made them so stiff. And so this wine, as this wine is going through the fermentation process, These men are flexible because they're seeing these new things and going in God's new ways. And so God's doing this great work, and they're the ones who are open to it. Verse 23 through 28. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So it's the Sabbath, and I'm not going to get into this, but there was a lot of ridiculous things. You weren't allowed to take a bath on the Sabbath because you weren't allowed to work and wash yourself. And what happens if water spills on the floor and you clean the floor? When we were in Israel, they have the Sabbath elevators. You don't want to get into a Sabbath elevator, especially if you're near the top floors, because what does it do? It stops at every single floor because you're not allowed to push the button, because that would be work. 
But what did I see them as they're standing outside of the elevator? They push the button. You know, the, the, most of them will, will kind of wait. But if you're waiting, you've got to wait kind of a long time. They'll kind of look around and kind of hit the button. So it, it just goes to ridiculous extents. And so these guys are walking through these grain fields. And what are they doing? They're, they're rolling the grain in their hands in order to separate the wheat from the chaff. And they're throwing the chaff, well, really the chaff is falling, and then they have the grains and they're able to eat. But what are they saying they're doing? You're working. You're working. And they're just taking, again, these traditions to these ridiculous extents. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? And he and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the son of man is also Lord of the Sabbath. God gave man the Sabbath as a gift. Now, we used to have Sunday as a day of rest. I grew up, born in 57, grew up in the 60s, and I remember in the 60s, there was nothing open on Sundays. Everything, for the most part, you know, maybe gas stations or whatever, for the most part was closed on Sundays. But somewhere along the line is we realize people are off and people are willing to spend money and stores started staying open, and you know, Sundays become a day like any other day. But as far as what if... God appeared to you tonight and said, I want you to take one day of the week off, do no work whatsoever on that day. And then also every seventh year, I want you to take the whole year off and I will provide for your every need. I mean, wouldn't that be a gift from God? Can you imagine having a whole year off from work? I mean, just think of the strengthening of families that you're able to do. Just think of the stuff you're able to get done and just the joy that you'd have in the Lord as he gave us this great gift. Well, the problem is they made it into this work of bondage. But Jesus said, just see, the, the, the issue with the showbread, I had intents and purposes for that, but nothing supersedes my intents and purposes than the taking care of my children. David went in there and that was good because he was in need of that food. And as far as the Sabbath, you're in need of this day of rest, but don't make it such a day of burden. Really, it's turned into a bigger burden than anything else. Now, why the Sabbath and all of that? What I see in the scriptures, to worship God, you had to keep 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And just think, if you had to keep all 613 commandments, you had to offer every sacrifice, offer every sacrifice properly, all of the festivals, keeping these things, my journeys into Jerusalem, all of this stuff. But then I would have one day off. One day off when I didn't have to worry about any of it. And now what have we done? We've, in, in those who profess to keep the Sabbath and to know the Sabbath, why are they worshiping God on the Sabbath? It wasn't God's intent that he be worshiped on the Sabbath. I mean, we worship every day, I understand that. But that's supposed to be a day of rest. But people have misconstrued this. They have placed burdens on people's backs. Again, people who keep the Sabbath. You need to be worshiping on Saturday rather than Sunday and all of these things. Whenever I hear anybody about keeping the Sabbath, I often wonder, are they taking every seventh year off from work? And I guarantee you they don't have that much faith. They're not into the Sabbath because now... Ooh, that can be kind of scary. But they'll dump their burden of belief upon other people. It's God's desire that we would find rest in the Lord Jesus Christ every single day. Matthew eleven twenty nine. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The true Sabbath is in the souls of men and women, and not in any particular day. Again, verse 28, Therefore the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is his gift to us, not meant to be a burden. Our Sabbath is peace that we have through his grace. It's hope that we have in his coming. 
and the rest that we have through faith. This was a thing that the Judaizers were doing back in Paul's day when <coughs> he was planting churches. And in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 17, and I'll close with this. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So people were trying to tell believers they needed to be circumcised, and Christ said, no, it's not about that physical act. You were buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and he means your heart, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all of your trespass, having wiped out the handwriting, the requirements that was against us, that which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, and he nailed it to his cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. That's Mount Calvary with Christ upon that cross. Verse 16, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is in Christ. So you have the Apostle Paul, who at one time was a Pharisee of Pharisees, but Christ arrested his soul. He sees the reality of these things. Don't worry about keeping the Sabbath. Don't worry about being circumcised or any of these other festivals or feasts and all of those things, because the substance of those things, they were always pointing to Christ. And now, yeah, they do point back to Christ, sure, but Christ has come, and Christ is the fulfillment of these things. And the idea is, we've got something so much better. And it's in that that we find our confidence, our hope, and we learn to rejoice. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word that, Lord, as you met those Pharisees, as you met those scribes, you met us as well in our religiosity. As we were with that man who was a paralytic, so were we, and you met us, Father, in, in, in our inadequacy. And as you did, Lord, you moved in a mighty way and you changed our hearts and you altered our souls and you changed the course of our lives. And for that, Father, we just rejoice you and your plan, your son and his work and the spirit and his empowerment. And so, Father, we just thank you for this evening and your word, praying that you would bless us. Pray, Father, though, that we would have that mindset of those four men, Lord, that we would be as passionate, bringing people to Christ and that we would see that great work, Lord, that you desire to do. Just lifting all to you tonight. Thanking you, God, for your word and your fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please? You can still sign up for the men's retreat, but you cannot sign up to eat at the men's breakfast, although you can go to the men's breakfast. That's this Saturday. If you're not, if you don't have a ticket, you can show up at 9 o'clock and partake of the word of God. Pastor David's going to be teaching, then Randy will be teaching, and I will be teaching. And I think it's going to be a great time of fellowship. If you have signed up at our church for a ticket, the ticket is on will call at their gazebo in the middle of the court area. So you'll need to pick it up from there. Other than that, have a great rest of the week. God bless you guys. Just sit and wait for all your goodness. Hope to feel your presence. I could just stay. I could just stay right where I am and hope to feel you. Hope to feel something again.
Lord, lead us deeper. We'll see you on Sunday.